welcome. Uh, welcome everybody for this next edition of the Thinkers Dialogue. Uh, we have a very special guest today. Uh, we have Roger Martin with us today, who's just one of the most prolific thinkers in the world. In fact, uh, just as a quick introduction, he was ranked amongst the foremost thinkers in the world. In fact, number one on the list in 2017 by Thinkers 50. Uh, in fact, Thinkers 50 is something that I've been involved with, uh, Dest uh, and Stu, uh, for a long, long time, for the last eight years. And it's just been an exciting journey. But following Roger's work has just been a cherishable moment for me. Uh, in fact, other than that, uh, in fact, he's been an advisor, CEO, advisor to the CEOs of companies. He has worked uh, with uh, people like Procter & Gamble, Lego, Ford. And then of course, uh, the most important thing is that he has done 28 uh, articles with HBR and done uh, tons and tons of books, but uh, about 12 of them. But some of the significant ones are getting beyond better, fixing the game, the design of business, uh, getting beyond better, playing to win. Uh, and those, those are the books uh, that have been done. Uh, in fact, uh, other than that, he was actually the dean for the foremost business school in Canada. In fact, if I'm not wrong in that, if I hazard to say, he, he was the person who transformed the Rotman School of Business. Uh, and if, a, if Roger recollects, like uh, uh, we have a very interesting history together as well. In fact, we created the Prosperity Institute of India in collaboration with the Martin Prosperity Institute a number of years back, and I had a great uh, uh, what chance of working uh, with his colleague uh, uh, there as well, Kevin Stolarek and uh, Richard Florida. Uh, so yeah. we did a couple of work, a couple of reports together and things, and we have been able to propagate that work as well. Uh, but uh, we also have another special guest here today, Mr. Arun Mayra. Uh, in fact, Mr. Mayra is somebody that everybody would know, like a prolific author himself, worked with the Planning Commission, worked with the Prime Minister, Manmohan Singh, and one of the foremost economists. So today the interaction is gonna be led by both of us. We thought we'd just change the format today a little bit. Uh, Mr. Mehra, thanks a lot for joining. Roger, uh, thanks a lot for joining. Uh, it's just been an honor to have you with us. Uh, so we'll quickly dive into the uh, conversation. Uh, you know, like uh, Roger, uh, the world has changed so significantly in the last one year and your new book, uh, which is talking about overcoming obsession with economic uh, efficiency. Uh, is very, very significant at this time of turmoil. Uh, could, could you just give me the, uh, give us an idea as to what propelled you to more work in that area and to really work on this uh, book? Sure, uh, well, I, I, as, you, as you well know and, and, and talked about before, I've been working on sort of public policy. I, I do a lot of work on strategy, but my other I mean, love, I guess, is, is the world of pub public policy and economic development and I've been working uh, on that for uh, many years, uh, I got appointed to uh, to chair a, com a commission on competitiveness, productivity, and economic progress in in Ontario, and that work got me worrying in increasingly about the stagnation of middle incomes. So I I, I saw it because I started that work in two thousand and one, and and I was watching the economy grow. Right in North America, I was mainly mainly focusing on on uh, North America, Ontario versus comp uh, comparable U.S. states, and the economy was growing, but median income was not. And I was like, "Hmm, that's that's interesting because that's not the way it, it had been uh, for a long time. If you go back uh, to post Second World War, uh, kind of American economics in in per particular, uh, the median income." I kind of grew pretty consistently with the with the economy, and so so I, I started asking myself the question: Hey, how will 
democratic capitalism as we know it today fair in a world in which the the swing voter because i sort of thought of the median vote the median family in economic terms as kind of the swing voter at least maybe not that particular family at exactly the 50th percentile but the but the band around the 50th percentile that's that band is is the the swing voting band and if they stagnate for a long period of time will they continue to support uh, the system of demo, uh, of democratic capitalism that that we have. So that's and, and and my preliminary answer was, gee, I I'm not sure they uh, they will. Like they supported it for the entirety of American history, right? Uh, because uh, they benefited from it, right? So so you know in in the great depression right which is a worldwide depression as you as as you well know most of uh, most of uh, europe went either fascist uh, socialist or communist and and uh, japan headed in a, in a in a in honest in a fascist uh, uh, direction uh, but america stayed staunchly uh, capitalist uh, moved to the left, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt moved uh, the political spectrum toward the left, but it was still, you know, avowedly uh, a capitalist. So, so Americans had had always uh, stuck by uh, democratic capitalism, even in a situation as bad as the Great Depression. But I started looking at that and said, you know what, the middle class is doing worse now right since 1976 than they did in the great depression right and 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 so that's that's the motivation the motivation of what why is that happening and what are the potential implications of uh of uh, a a long-term stagnation of the median family income in america you know like as you were talking about incomes and in your book you touch upon a very important aspect and that is what you're uh, talking about economics of being a teacher uh, and as I was reading the first few lines of the book I was just startled to know as to what has really happened uh, could, could you share that thing because you're talking to those two teachers because they are the nation builders in many many ways and they are through the pain of how capitalism is possibly not functioning for them uh, yeah. so how do you really look at that situation as well yeah, well, it, uh, yeah, we started uh, started the book with uh, with a vignette from our Persona project, where we went out and interviewed kind of real, kind of average Americans to, to see how they were experiencing, you know, American essentially democratic capitalism. And this was a teacher uh, who had a master's degree, elementary school teacher, had a master's uh, degree, and was in North Carolina. She'd come originally from from upstate New York. And where she got an education, moved to North Carolina to, to teach, and she was genuine, like like she was genuinely angst-ridden about being unable to make ends meet on a teacher's salary. Uh, and what was what was so kind of stunning for her was, uh, you know, she had done it all right, right? She was told, right, as she grew up, if you get an education, and of course she got an education that that a minority of people get a graduate degree, right? Uh, in her passion, which happened to be uh, teaching, she loved uh, uh, teaching, 
that that would make would it make the most spectacular economic life where she could buy a hundred foot yacht? No, but it would make a life where she could take care of herself, uh, her uh, her child. She had, she had one uh, a child. She was a single uh, single mom at the at the time of the uh, at the interview, and she had to take uh, jobs in the summer because. Uh, in in, uh, in in most American states, you only get paid during the school year, uh, and she essentially, you know, that salary enabled her to to uh, to kind of live for those months. But in the summer, she had to work, work as a waitress in a restaurant uh, to make uh, ends meet. And so that sort of angst about, I thought I knew how the system worked, and I did everything I was supposed to, and look at me. I've ended up ended up here. Is that is that the way it's it works now? That that was what what she was asking, and and we started out the book because it was so representative of what we heard in this persona uh, a project. We heard it over and over again, which is like, hmm, I I thought I did everything. I thought I was doing what you're supposed to do, and it doesn't seem to be working. But Roger, when you say that teachers were not being Paid or they were not able to make enough money to make ends meet. Uh, that's a very startling statement because these are educated people. So that also undermines the very possibility of education for the future. Uh, yes. A lot of people will get disenchanted with the idea of uh, education uh, because if they don't educate themselves, it also has a huge repercussion on how democracies are functioning or how what you would call as how democratic capitalism will function. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and, and as, as you know, from reading the book, you know, one of the things we focus on is the degree to which it is a complex adaptive system. It is a really com complex thing uh, in every, all sorts of pieces have to work. And one piece that has to work, right, is, is, what, is what you said, the education system. You know, if the education system does not work and, and a you know, vast majority of people don't get well well educated or get less well educated that has a ripple effect on everything else in, in the economy um, and uh, and of course the truth is that it used to work right uh, it, it teachers used to make a, a, an income that, that enabled them to, uh, to, to live at least a, com a comfortable life uh, and they like the rest of the, the those people around the median uh, income in the economy could expect that the uh, economy would grow at at uh, this uh, you know, this rate, which it did up till 1976. Uh, from the time we started actually measuring median income, it grew at 2.4% uh, real. Um, and why that matters is 2.4% real means it doubles every 30 years. So that would mean a meet if you were like an average, you know, American family at the median looking across the table to your kids, you could literally say to your kids, chances are when you're sitting across the kitchen table from your children, you will be twice as well off as uh, as we are today. That's not bad, right? That's that's a that's a good that's a you know kind of an attractive uh, vision uh, for the future. Yeah, kind of now. If you're that same that same father sitting around, sitting across the table from your kids, uh, all you'll be able to say is, "Kids, if you have kids, and they have kids, and then they have kids, right? Those kids, right, will be twice as well off as as we are today, because the that increase in in uh, uh, real uh, family uh, income." 
is, is now only going up at 0.6 of 1% a year, which means it doubles every 100 years. Now, is that a compelling pitch? I think the first pitch is pretty compelling. Hey, kids, if you go to school, you work hard, you could be twice as, twice as well off as we are today versus, uh, you know, kind of the, the fourth generation down the line will be twice as well off as, as today. That's not, to me, a compelling pitch to say, wow, that must mean our economic system is the best system imaginable, you know? No, it, it's not. And that's not happened before in America. Full stop. That has not happened before in the history of America. That, that length and that magnitude of stagnation the the Great Depression was less of a stagnation. It lasted for a shorter time, and the recovery was greater than uh, than what's experiencing now. And that, I think, is an amazing fact, right? So that, that's a very startling set of information that you're sharing. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, you share some very interesting numbers, like, and that is on productivity growth and how wage has diverged over a period of time. Because that's also a very worrying trend, because that also says that the corporations are possibly making tons of money, they're accumulating a lot more wealth, and then people are not really getting better endowed as you're actually looking at growth. Right. Yes, once again, it, uh, I, I point to the 70s as a time when things things just changed. If you look at the numbers, things changed. And, and I mean, you're pointing to, to one a big one, which is, which is up till... Uh, the mid 70s about 72 73 in this in this case if if you were talking about productivity and wage growth you were talking the same thing right the lines were like they just were the same it was like they were they were identical and then and then productivity continued along right uh and wages stopped right <laughs> there was just like boom uh, you know a different a different situation so yes uh uh, uh workers are, have been over the last 40 years helping uh, the economy become more productive uh, every every year uh, consistently um, and literally have shared only a tiny bit uh, of, of that, like a, a fraction, like a, a tenth, uh, not quite, a little bit more than a tenth of the increase in productivity that they've helped generate. Now, have workers generated the productivity entirely themselves? No, you know, increased capital and technology and all of that. But, um, you know, you'd want, I think, anybody who'd say, you know, I care about democratic capitalism and the populace as a whole would want uh, uh, the rewards of productivity to flow at least uh, to a, a substantial extent to workers. Like, I think it was great when it, when it, when essentially it was a one-to-one -one relationship, but you didn't, wouldn't even have to be that doctrinaire to say, well, maybe it's 50%. Well, it isn't even close to 50%. How about a quarter, a quarter, maybe a quarter of it flows to, nope, nope. <laughs> it's like, you know, 15%. Uh, that's, that is, again, that is as far back as we've been able to measure uh, uh, that, because we don't have productivity, you know, and uh, uh, and wage numbers for back forever. But as far as we can measure back, that has never been the case in America, and now it is and has been for forty years. So that's that. That's quite fascinating. And but then, you know, like when when you talk about the Biden administration, it is trying to do something about it in terms of saying. We are, we are possibly going to eliminate the student debt. We are actually going to ask enterprises to increase wages. Do you, do you think that might solve the problem a bit or we are still getting deeper into the mess as we are talking about this? 
it's it uh, uh, you know i'm i'm an optimistic guy so i guess i'm 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 hopeful um am i would i guarantee it well no uh because i i do not think there's been a recognition of the the again a fundamental flaws in in the uh, uh in the uh in the way the economy is is managed so i haven't heard anything from the biden administration that says we kind of are getting that this is a complex adaptive machine that our economists simply cannot understand as much as they wish they uh, they could, and we've got to take a different perspective on it. It's been more. It's been more. And remember, in the book, I say every time kind of economy, economic economists or public policy folks say, "Oh, I know what lever to pull. I'll pull that lever, and the following result will be." They don't get the results that they they that they expected, and I I see a lot of you know kind of bravado that you get out of a new administration right to uh, uh, to say we'll pull this lever uh, like you know we, we, we need to have this infrastructure program so we're going to raise corporate income ta uh, taxes because the corporations have to have to pay more my prediction is the uh, rise of corporate income tax uh, tax rate is not going to increase uh, uh, revenues from corporate income taxes at all. Like, and, and it's because it's a big complex adaptive system, right? And what do corporations uh, do in the modern uh, economy, right? They adapt globally to tax regimes, right? And that's why corporate income taxation as a percentage of the of income tax takes in the OECD has been falling and falling and falling, right? It's because they, because they, they structure their their operations around the world to, to do that. I am a fan, by the way. Just so you know, I'm a I'm a great fan of Scandinavian uh, kind of uh, tax philosophy, right? and and I, I I wish I wish we adopted that in the in the U.S. So people think of Scandinavia as a super high tax regime. It's not. Right? Um, uh, it, they they are a super clever tax regime. So if you just take Sweden for example, Sweden basically says to Swedes. We're going to have, run a heck of a country here. It's going to be a great country with great uh, uh, social services, a great uh, a great safety net, good good environment, etc. And for that privilege, if you want to actually enjoy all of that as a person, you're going to pay high personal income taxes. And then they go to the corporations and say, "You have one important job: create high-paying jobs." which we will then tax, right? We will tax the person holding that high, high, high paying job who has the privilege of living in, in, uh, in Sweden. Uh, and so they have exceedingly low corporate income tax uh, uh, rates. This is smart, right? Because corporations are very mobile, right? People are not nearly as mobile. And if you create a great country, people do not want to be mobile out of that great country. They say, I wanna, I wanna live there. That's smart taxation. American taxation historically has been the stupidest taxation in the OECD other than France and France, you know, it's pathetic on everything economically pretty much. Uh, so of the entire OECD, uh, the, the United States has historically had the stupidest tax system, right? It says, we're going to make America a, a great uh, country. And for that privilege, you're going to pay exceedingly low by OECD standards, personal income tax. 
So we're gonna we're actually not gonna charge you for the for the privilege. In fact, we're gonna make it a bargain, a bargain basement uh, kind of uh, a place. And all you corporations, because you're just like rich individuals, uh, we should tax the hell out of you. They, uh, America has until recently had the among the highest tax rates for corporations, uh, income tax rates for corporations. So the corporations say, okay, I, I hear you, no problem. You don't want us here. Uh, and so we will we will try to earn as much income outside America as as uh, as humanly uh, possible, and we will we will create jobs outside uh, America. Right, that's been the thing, and literally under the last administration, even though you know like people don't don't like that last administration, they finally took action on that and brought American corporate tax rates uh, down. Now, what I would have loved to have seen in that uh, alongside that is raising personal income tax uh, rates to get more Scandinavia like in in the in the structure. So I can't I can't get all giddy about uh, the fact the Biden administration has increased corporate income or is in the process of increasing corporate income tax uh, rates because it'll just make the, the American tax uh, system stupider, right? Plain, plain and simple, just stupider, less less effective. This is not a right left issue. This is a smart, stupid issue, and we're going stupider. So there just has to be an understanding of the economy behind uh, behind these these things. And uh, and I wish I wish I wish there uh, was. Like Sweden is not. Last time I checked, a, a right wing uh, country, right? Uh, why can't we have taxation like Sweden? Hmm? Why does America, by the way, have, have, is, is the only OECD country without a national VAT? This is interesting, uh, Roger. And before, before, I, before I turn to Mr. Mayra, uh, I have one more question. In fact, I'm sure he will sure. have a lot of questions on this. But then you, you said, you know, like it's about right-wing uh, populism and how democracies will turn. And you've also touched upon something very important in your book, and that is about how people are getting disengaged from politics. Uh, they are probably getting feeling disenchanted how things are happening because all of this becomes a political economy question that you're trying to answer. And this is possibly giving rise to what you would call as the authoritarian leaders or right-wing leaders or populist leaders and things. like. So how do you really look at this situation as well? Oh, well, I mean, I don't, you, you're saying that. I didn't, I don't say that in the book. Uh, I, I do not, uh, um, there's, a, there's a side of me that just does not love the dialogue around populism and populism is bad right like i mean that that's literally what 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 people saying populism bad you know i you know i i i think there are kinds of political movements that are 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 bad but just the fundamental idea that that a large percentage of the population feels that they're being left out and calling that kind of populism and that's bad is is not. I mean, it, to me, it it, it doesn't uh, uh, compute. I mean, I guess I guess in some sense, right? I'm I I I've always just I've always cared about the average man or woman in my in my country, right? I I, I care less about the the high I of the the distribution, the highly educated kind of wealthy people. I just I just I just don't. And and so, so what I what I care about 
is like I think uh, what what is a great country? A great country is a country in in which the the median families. Uh, uh, prosperity rate rises uh, uh, consistently over time. We tax the richer tail of the distribution to make the lives of the poorer tail of the distribution better off. And in particular, we we spend in ways that create mobility for the for that uh, uh, left tail of the distribution. We can't create utopia on Earth, but we at least can create a situation in which those in the in the in the lower tail of the distribution are aided in mobility by the transfer of wealth from the from from the high from the highest part of the distribution so that's that's what what i i i care about that that's the basic equation uh for me and and you know and if while we do that we uh we kind of uh, make sure we take care of the planet and not and not have the planet uh, kind of suffer grotesquely because they, uh, as we as we try it as as we try and perform that little dance that I that I I've just described that's that's a that's a good country and if you don't have that happen right then in my view bad things start to happen and you get you get a a, a people sort of giving up and saying kind of blow it up and and I think we've had these these elections in recent past that have been blow it up elections. Right? Brexit was a blow it up uh, uh, election, right? It was it, uh, it was or a vote uh, it was an election. It was a blow it up vote. It's sort of like uh, you know, and and it's probably apocryphal, but it just makes for such a good story. It's the number one search term in the UK the day after Brexit was what is the EU. Right, so the the country voted to blow up something that it didn't actually know what it was, but what the hell? Let's blow something up because we're not happy. And in my in my view, in many respects, the the Trump win was a blow it up win. Right, it was drain the swamp, blow it up, and and did did the Trump voters know exactly what they wanted to blow up? No, they were just mad, and so let's blow something uh, something up. So that that do I like that form? If you want to call that populism of pop populism, no, I, I, I'd, I'd rather have I'd rather have the population broadly be saying um, I am going to stay involved politically and I don't want to blow things up. I want to I want to migrate them in a direction that is uh, that is uh, better for us. Uh, sure, uh, Mr. Maida, over to you, please. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Roger. It's been uh, such a privilege and a pleasure to be with you here today. Uh, I have been following your work uh, for the last 30 years, uh, reading, following, and learning behind you and researching myself. Um, mm -hmm. So when Amit begins introducing me as the a foremost economist, I'm glad to say that I never studied economics formally, unlike you, I never did. Uh, and when you're, I, you're, be, you're I, better off, you're better off then. In some ways, yes, I don't have to unlearn uh, things right. which are ingrained in me. So when I joined the planning commission, I was invited by Manmohan Singh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, to join the planning mm -hmm. commission. I, I thought he'd made a mistake and I told him, sir, I've never studied economics because it was assumed that 
if you are in the planning commission of india you must be an economist of course everyone sure. who is making policy is supposed to be an economist and he said but that is why uh i he said did he really interesting yeah, that's hard i have been following you a bit too and i'm highly honored and it's your fresh perspective about modeling which doesn't come the way economists model of things yeah. and you know you've been pointing this out integrative thinking is something that you have been promoting and as you said in integrative thinking you can keep and should keep two models which seem to be in opposition in mind pick into them and pick the best from them and and create something which is a uh, better but don't get stuck into one model or it's opposing apparently opposing model so yes. as you said uh, uh, this then i began i was a physicist actually and physicists uh-huh. model and love to model and engineers love to model physical systems began to recognize that this is before i joined the planning commission this is while you know you were monitor and i was with the innovation associates and i had to be little that uh, uh, there are two types of systems there are the mechanical engineered systems and then there are organic adaptive self adaptive systems and they both are systems and they both have some architectural principles by which yeah. uh, they uh, they run hmm? now coming to your, the profound thing which i'm struggling with and the world is struggling with i guess is the conflict between capitalism and democracy when the uh, uh, sort of the end of history happened with the collapse of the soviet union as fukuyama said it was the forever victory of a model but actually there were two systems inside that model there was democracy and there was capitalism both yes. of which were supposed to have won against the soviet union because one was not socialist it was capitalist the western system and also it was democratic and not authoritarian however it's these two systems now which were the victors were quarreling with each other and i feel that they both are running on very different principles of decision making and governance and power in the capitalist system it's based on it's right that if you own more of something you have a greater say on how that should be run or used yeah okay so property rights and therefore in a corporation those who own more of it should be allowed to have a greater say on uh, how the corporation shall be run but you come to democracy which says whether you own something or not you have an equal say on how the system is going to be run one half yeah. so and so when both these principles combine in one system which is a country or or the world they are like an ac appliance being plugged into a dc socket and there is a blow up and we are beginning to experience <laughs> that blow up of two uh, systems which are conflicting in the basic principles of governance uh, in in them and so i'm coming to a question for you though but let me just explain a little further you see i'm finding like you've explained very well that uh, uh, people are not mobile because they want to and need to live for various social reasons and other reasons in their own countries finance can be very mobile and businesses when become run by financial principles they can move themselves wherever they want to because that's what is easy to move across the world so the principles by which financial globalization is operating more and more are making it life much easier for migrant capital and very hard for migrant labor and we've experienced this in the covid time here in my country greatly and before that of course as you know migrants trying to get into 
Europe and to America, um, very, very hard for people. So life was becoming harder for people, that is the beating hearts, and much easier for people who had the money and accumulated more money and they could take it wherever they wanted to uh, and to save taxes on, on, on that money. So the thing is, how does one change the system? And that's what Dr. Manmohan Singh sort of put to me. Now look, he is within a system. He can't suddenly decide that it's going to be something else because he needs the people presently in power hmm, to, and the other wealthy people, because he needs their money and taxes to be able to fund and do things for, for the common people. So it's the, the, the design of governance, how decisions are taken and who takes them. And this is where in the capitalist principles about if you have the money, then you must have a greater say, because of course we do need your money uh, to help do other things. How do you think they're going to change the idea change the ideas of governance within corporations and in economies? Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think I, I uh, uh, have sympathy for your, your, uh, your diag diagnosis. It, it, I, I guess I, I consider it more of just a tension though. Like, so, so it's a tension that I think between capitalism and, and, and democracy. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I care so much about democratic capitalism is it's, it's this, this, this lovely thing that is full of tension. That that uh, the kind of the leading uh, democratic capitalist countries in the world have somehow managed to to uh, to structure and manage that that tension. And, and I would argue that that worked well in America up till uh, 1976, approximately. And I use that you know obviously because it's the 200th uh, uh, it's the bicentenary of, of of America. So. I think the fact that it worked for as long as it did says it's not unworkable, right? And then the, that just uh, uh, leaves the question: Well, well, why did it stop working? Which I write about in 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 the in the book. We we pursued efficiency, and and again, the democratically elected governments pursued efficiency as much as the corporations. So this wasn't the corporations, the capitalist corporations are doing something bad and the governments are doing something good, right? The governments were pursuing efficiency. They said, we must deregulate, uh, kind of we must let companies kind of merge and ignore the antitrust uh, uh, laws. We must open trade and say freer trade is, is always better. All those things were not done by corporations. Right. They and 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 in some sense, you know, I I I think there's a greater danger from in campaign finance uh, uh, from big uh, from rich people than there is from from uh, from corporations. It wasn't as though the corporations had such a strong voice that they were forcing governments, the U.S. government, to to uh, obsess about efficiency to this extent and tilt things in in the direction of. Of, of obsessive efficiency, right? It was democracy, the democracy side doing that. So, so what I, I, I think it is fixable and we've just have to walk away. There's a cliff, there's a cliff of sort of absolute worshiping at the, at the feet of economic efficiency and just using these proxies for it and pushing and pushing and pushing. We simply have to walk together back away from that. And I think the tension between democracy and capitalism can be managed. Can it be made to go away? Right, kind of no. Right, this 
this reminds me, you know, we were both in a, in a, in a, in an industry, me and monitor, you are the little, a crazy industry where people, people worked like crazy, right? Young people working like crazy and consultants would be in my office, uh, bemoaning the work life, home life balance, right? And Roger, you have to help me fix, fix that. I'm having, I'm having trouble like, like balancing between trying my, to advance my career at monitor and, and, uh, and, you know, be a good husband or a good wife, uh, uh and good father good good mother and and i would say you're looking for you're looking to make something go away that can't won't ever the best you can do is manage the tension between those two things and what you're now complaining about in my office which is fine is is you've gotten unbalanced right you've got unbalanced in the in the uh, work life uh, uh direction i can help you think about how to get it more balanced i can't help you make the problem go away i would say that that's the same thing for for the economy we cannot make go away the tension between how capitalism functions and how democracy come, functions but we can manage that tension in a more productive way than we than we have now and and I, you know i i think as i say in the book everybody's got a role to play if we just use corporations and, and the government for the moment. I talk about citizens and educators too, but the corporations and, and governments. Corporations have to be smarter about the degree to which they pursue efficiency with proxies that are not effective uh, proxies. And I think governments just have to just stop, <laughs> stop worshiping at the altar of, of uh, economic efficiency. They have. It has been it has been a a, a, a kind of uh, a trend a dominant theme a dominant trend in in government and again people I don't people have to be careful they're 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 acting as though it's a left wing right wing thing no over the last fifty years you know there's been exactly equal control. Of U.S. government, federal government of Democrats and Republicans, right? Thirty of those years have been a Republican president and twenty a Democratic president. Thirty years have been Democratic control of Congress and twenty years Republican. It's half and half, and both parties have drunk the Kool Aid of economic efficiency, uh, and and so they've got to they've got to knock it off. So I, I'm I may be slightly slightly more optimistic. Uh, uh, structurally, than uh, than you are on 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 this uh, on this front. So I'm very optimistic. Just a follow on short question. Okay. You Good. said about economists. It's about economists. It's a change in within economics. The change within economics. And I'm finding, as you said, that uh, whether you are right wing or left wing, uh, the populism movements come both sides. The people have lost confidence in economists. The Absolutely, and, and they should. Economists. <laughs> they should. They should. I, you know how? <clears throat> excuse me. You know how they talk about peak oil, right? We've reached. We've reached peak oil. We've reached peak economists. Right. <laughs> we're we're going to look back on the grand sweep of history, and and we'll be able to pin it down only in uh, retrospectively, and and say it was it was somewhere around between 2000 and 2010 we reached peak economists. Where economists had the had the highest status, they were believed kind of reflexively to the greatest ex extent, uh, kind of ever, 
uh, and wow, and we're in 2050 now, and it's like wow. The, if the peak was, let's say, you know, 2007 uh, at uh, an index of 100, we're at 30 now. Isn't that amazing? And back in 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 uh, kind of 1935, we were we were at 30. So it went from 30 to 100 back to 30. I do not think economists are are ever, even though ever is a long time, going to be as prominent. Uh, in decision making, as they were ten-ish years ago, the peak is so- somewhere around there. It's 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 conceivable to me the peak was a kind of a day before the global financial crisis, um, and and because because right, economists were fundamentally behind the global financial uh, crisis. Right? It was it was essentially Fed easy money. Uh, uh, from 2001 to, to 2008 that, that drove that. And then the economists were like, gee, that's too bad. We didn't think about that. No, <laughs> you didn't think about that. Oh, oh how about that? You know, shouldn't, shouldn't, if you're going to pull levers like that, maybe you ought to think about it uh, first. So it, it could be that peak uh, economist was 2008-9. I, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's potentially uh, the case. You know, I'm as as you correctly pointed out, pointed out. I'm trained originally as an as an economist. You're trained as a physicist, which is which which as a little side side thing. When I took over as dean of the Rotman School, uh, it's uh, the school is now named after Joseph Rotman, uh, the late Joseph Rotman, a wonderful prince saint of a man. Um, and uh, the minute I got uh, named as dean, uh, I got a, a call from the president's office saying saying you know the donor. Uh, uh, now that now that we've named a dean, he desperately wants to meet you. And I said, well, that's great. And we had this lovely dinner. And he asked me how how would I, if I were starting with a blank sheet of paper, how would I change the uh, MBA education and the MBA program? And I said I would wipe out. So it's really four semesters, right? Fall and spring, first year, fall and spring, second second year. I would wipe out the entire curriculum of the fall. And teach only two things all all, all fall, physics and philosophy. <laughs> and, and and he was like, well, that's intriguing. Why? And I said, well, physics is the most basic science of how things work, <laughs> and philosophy is the most basic science of how people work, <laughs> and business and business is nothing but the integration of how people and things work, right? <laughs> and so. Instead of starting at the applied level, you know, we're going to teach you marketing. Da, 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 that all of all of all of those disciplines—marketing, economics, whatever—build on top of the the basic sciences uh, that underlie underlie management. And so, what I'd rather do is make sure everybody is grounded in how things work and how people work, and then we can build apps on top of on top of it. I mean that. That would be a fall, fall first year of Windows, and then the rest of Office, right? In 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 uh, in uh, some sense. So I'm, I'm interested that you're you're a physicist, and 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 I would argue that that uh, you're better positioned than an economist to imagine how an economy works. Actually, sorry to say, but you know. <laughs> I mean, having an economics education is not a bad thing as long as you don't take it too seriously, right? Uh, and, and I always used to do that when, when I was sitting in economics classes, uh, right? And, uh, you know, uh, 
and, and I went to a very good university for economics. Like I went to Harvard, but it's supposed to be pretty good at economics. I just, I kept saying, especially in macroeconomic classes, I said, really? Really? You're like, really? You think you can say that? What? Like, you're, you're so, you're so sure about that? Like microeconomics was a little easier for me to say, okay, I, 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 curves cross, I get that, you know, uh, you know, whatever. But when I blew it up to macroeconomics, I was like, I, I, I just, I just, I just couldn't believe, even as a like a 21 year old or 18, 19, 21 year old, as like, how can they be so cocksure, right, about how they think things, uh, things work, anyway. I've gotten I've gotten us distracted, but uh, I just thought uh, uh, you're you're you are correct. People have lost faith in economists, and they will never, in my view, come back. We've gone past peak economists. Thank you. Stunned silence. <laughs> no, that's, I, a, that's a classic. That's a classic rant. No, 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 no. I am uh, again following you, and I'm feeling encouraged. I'm feeling encouraged. Because I did write a long essay during the COVID, uh, reflecting on all this, and the title of my essay was "Who the Economists Serve Really?" And I was quoting mm -hmm. Nobel laureates in economics, especially recently, who are questioning their own economics. Yes, Joseph Stiglitz, uh, Abhijit Banerjee, recent Nobel laureates, and of course going back. And so, as you you write there, that uh, even the economists are beginning to question their own economics. But what I find yeah. very amusing in a way is that they will not accept something unless an economist said it is true. Like people have emotions unless there are Nobel laureate economists who said, oh, you've got to have an economics of <laughs> emotions, then it is not a valid idea. But the yeah. rest of us as common people, we know these things. So that is why we say you guys seem to be locked in your own bubble, writing yeah. for each other, debating each other. What about us? <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, it's true. And, and, and most people, for, for example, and, and, and how like you quickly, quickly went to Nobel laureate Stiglitz, uh, you know, and, and, and so, yes, being a Nobel laureate in economics it, I mean, it's, is a massive prestige factor. And you believe that you must you must listen, listen to such uh, uh, such people. Most people do not know how you get to be a Nobel laureate in economics. Right. What happens is the Nobel Committee goes to extremely learned economists, academic economists who are in the center of that, and ask them for their opinions. And then, then, then people get appointed from the middle of the the the, the beast. Essentially, they put together a dossier on on various economists to be considered by the Nobel Committee. So, the economics profession has total control. Over who gets to be anointed as an as as a Nobel laureate, and you can't get to be a Nobel laureate in 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 economics unless you pay complete fealty to the field. Right? If you are an outsider to the field, it is not possible with the process as it is for you to uh, to get to be a Nobel laureate. So in that way, Arun, it's like massively self-healing. So you have to drink the Kool-Aid to, to have the, uh, the opportunity for a dossier to be put together by other people who've drunk the Kool-Aid for you to be anointed, and then you get listened to. And the funny thing about, about Nobel uh, laureates is 
is as 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 the two of this call probably knows is as you have to have a, written about a an extremely narrow field, right? To be dominant in an extremely narrow field. Right? Um, what do all Nobel economists, not all, most Nobel economists do the minute they get a, the Nobel Prize in economics? Start pontificating about everything under the sun, right? Like think, think about all the things that Paul Krugman writes about in the New York Times that he has zero background in. Lots, right? But most of them he has no 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 back, but it's Paul Krugman. So therefore it must be it must be right. But that but we've passed peak peak economists and people are gonna gonna start saying, what the hell does he know about that? Uh, and, and he's being totally declarative. It will be thus and such. Uh, I know for sure. You know, no, you don't. If you if you go back and look at all the work that you've written about, you never wrote, written about that except in the New York Times. Um, Amit, I, I will, can keep monopolizing and enjoying this conversation, but I think there are other people here too, Amit. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, for uh, yeah. uh, taking a few questions here. Uh, but then, uh, Roger, you know, like I have a very interesting question from uh, Sylvia, who, who's joined us. And says, so yes. like, how do you see the situation in five years from a global point of view in a corporate enterprise? And what kind of changes would be necessary to improve uh, the situation in general? Well, I mean, I, I, I lay out a, a whole lot of things in the, in the book about, uh, uh, about that subject. The overarching uh, answer to Sylvia's uh, question is, is, if we start with corporations, which is where she where she uh, where she started the, the question is, is corporations have got to stop using imperfect proxies for efficiency, and and then attempt to maximize those proxies, right? So, corporations will say, we have to have efficiency in our labor costs. So, how will we get that? The normal answer is keep wage rates down. And get rid of excess redundant staff down to down to the last the last uh, uh, person. That will make us efficient, more efficient. And so, if corporations continue to do that, they will be grinding down the wages of the of the median family and making sure that the swing voter is, is feeling less and less comfortable and confident in in the in the uh, economy. And they won't be more effective, right? This is why I use the example of Costco. Now, maybe global viewers may not may, uh, may not uh, know all that much about Costco, but it's a it's a low low price point retailer that's that's arguably now the most successful profitable retailer in in America, uh, and uh, and it has this more sophisticated system dynamics view of labor, uh, and at a time when when minimum wage is across the state by state, it is not a federal uh, minimum minimum wage is in the in the range of nine to twelve dollars. The lowest waged employee in all of Costco is about twenty one dollars an hour. So it's not it's not even in the ballpark of close to minimum wage in a sector of retailing where that's where the biggest uh, proportion that and food food service are uh, food service food preparation are the two lowest wage. Uh, uh, job classifications in in, in America, um, it's just out of sight. It's like double, right? 
and nobody's making them do that. They just they just say that. And they're competing not at the high end. They're not Nordstrom's. They're competing with where you've got to deliver low price points uh, for customers to go. They pay an extraordinary amount. Um, they also have an approach, which is, which is to say, you know, we know what the algorithms tell us for staffing in the in the stores. How many how many labor hours we need on the store floor for the given traffic levels, and and we'll staff to that level and just add in a slush factor of some extra staff, right? So they they would be considered. And by the way, we're going to train our people, spend more of our time training people than any than any of our our competitors. So you can say, oh, how inefficient is Costco? Terrible. How can you even even stay in business being so so inefficient? But that's not their measure of of efficiency. Their measure of efficiency, right, is do people love 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 to shop at Costco? Uh, and if they do, the stores will be full of people. Their their shopping carts will be full of stuff, and we'll be fine. That's a much more sophisticated view, and and they and and they believe. Jim Senegal, co-founder of Costco, if you talk to him today, will say, say, you know, they'll come to the store and they'll fill their basket if they're served by employees who are happy, who want to serve them. There are enough of them around uh, to uh, uh, to help them out. Those employees are not worrying about, uh, am I going to get food on the table for my kids tonight or a roof over, over our heads? They're totally comfortable uh, kind of with that. And those employees will be even happier if they realize that everybody in the corporate head office started there. We're entirely promote from within. We just we simply don't hire people in from the from the outside. You've got to work your way up. So everybody who's actually a clerk on the shop floor thinks that they can be CEO some some uh, someday, and they're not delusional. You know, they 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 can because that's where future CEOs and executive vice presidents come from from within. So. What I'd say is corporations have to start thinking in that more system dynamics way, right? Rather than this linear way, if I chop, because I, I, I'm sure there would be hedge fund managers who would say, I want to take over Costco and bring some sense to their insane uh, labor policies. Uh, and we could double profitability if we just if we just cut, cut wages in, in half, fired a bunch of pe people and got them being more efficient. And they'd be right, probably that for a quarter or two, right? If you chop those costs, the customers would still would still come. But after two or three years, the customers would stop coming uh, and the company would be worthless and you'd, you'd have to sell it in, out of bankruptcy, right? So, so having that more system dynamic view of, of business is, is what corporations, I think, have to think about. They have to stop Again, you know, kind of uh, believing believing that you 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 must you kind of uh, uh, re reduce everything to little uh, little silos, eliminate all all slack, uh, uh, slack. Use these use these proxies, these surrogates that are that are imperfect. And if they do, corporations can succeed to a greater extent than they're succeeding now. In a way, as with Costco, right, that raises. Uh, kind of uh, the the uh, the wages of the people in the middle of the of the distribution, and what do th what do you think they're going to do with those wages? I mean, right? Buy more stuff. It'll be good for the it'll be good for the for the economy. They'll buy more housing. They'll buy more education. They'll buy more healthcare. They'll, all things that that stimulate the economy. So, 
are making it, uh, corporations are making this a zero sum game in a way that they don't need to, right? And that, and that's the kind of corporate behavior that uh, that we need to get out of uh, out of this. So, uh, Roger, like there is a very uh, interesting follow-on question to this, and uh, one of mm -hmm. the is asking, and he says, like, uh, and going back to one of your previous points, like metrics like genuine progress index has been showing that there is stagnation and reversal of well-being since 1970, and something exactly yep. what you've been alluding to. So, yep. why hasn't a metric beyond a GDP uh, that has really come up or has become very popular, because that might actually help us solve a few problems. Because I think what you're really saying is also our absolute obsession with GDP, corporate profitability, and so on and yeah. so forth. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I really think that the, the reason is that these, that, you, know, you know, they say in real estate, right? Possession is nine tenths of the law, right? In models, possession is 99% of the, of the law, right? It took a while for GDP per capita to become the standard way of thinking about about uh, measurement. And if you read my my uh, one of the books you mentioned, the design of business, I talk about reliability versus validity. In uh, the world, kind of ha has a love affair with reliability, uh, uh, and was willing to sacrifice a lot of validity for that. So, so GDP is a reliable system. Right, you know how to collect it. You know what goes into it. There's a general agreement on all, all of, all of that. Like, if you put a hundred economists in a room, perish the thought, they would all say, be able to state the definition of GDP per capita. And if, they, if you then said and, and remind me how you measure, they say, oh, you collect this information, this information. So you have a system that's reliable. It produces a consistent, reliable outcome. You can tell, uh, you know, within months after the quarter, what, what. Uh, India's GDP uh, was that quarter and well, how much it grew from the previous quarter. The systems you're talking about uh, uh, are, are more valid, right? They're a more valid description of how economically well we're doing in a more holistic way. And so there's a desire for those, but they're less reliable, right? The definitions of the things that go in them are more judgmental. Right. And for many people, that's just a bad thing. For me, they're not. I'm a validity oriented person. That's why I say things like, you know, you shouldn't pick do either or you should build something something better. Uh, you shouldn't think of it as a machine. You should think about it. Like that. So I'm I'm sort of a validity oriented person. I always want uh, kind of uh, uh, I'll sacrifice a little reliability for validity. But the world is biased in the other direction. So these these reliable but invalid measures hang around for a lot longer. Now, the good news, right, to me, is that the, the validity of GDP keeps getting undermined more and more. And that's part of the process for changing. And so what I'd say to the person asking that question is, keep pushing, hang in there. GDP will go as the dominant uh, uh, kind of measure of, of, of economics, but it'll take way longer than anybody who's validity oriented can even barely can tolerate. But that's that's the way the world works. Possession is 99% of the law when it comes to models, uh, and it takes a hell of a long time to uh, uh, to tear down an old and uh, and useless model. And 
of course, like we are coming towards the end of the uh, interaction, uh, Raja, but I, I have to ask you one big question. Any final remarks? And what would you suggest are the three big books that people should read in these present times, which could actually add on to the thinking? Oh, interesting. Well, uh, I, I hope they'd, uh, they'd read uh, this book. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think the American pragmatist philosophers are, are super important. And uh, I would, uh, I would read John Dewey's art as experience to it, it is a complicated and difficult book, but it, it gives, I think, a way of thinking about how you should experience life in a way to get better at understanding the, the world around you. So, uh, and people will be mad if they pick it up, they'll say, God, this is a very difficult to read, uh, to read book. Um, oh, The Good Job Strategy. Zainab Tan, uh, uh, she's an MIT Sloan uh, a professor, so he at the Sloan School of Management, has written a brilliant book about uh, uh, about how you can turn bad jobs into uh, into good jobs. And oh, I forget the name of it. You know what's do, do you, Lawrence Lessing's book right on on uh, uh, on campaign finance reform? He's a Harvard uh, Harvard Law School professor. Uh, uh, Lawrence Lessing, uh, L I L E S S I G, and he's and he's had a book about two two years ago, two three. No, it's probably five years ago now, on campaign finance uh, reform and and uh, you know I'm I'm an economist, businessman kind of person. I I I think there's another legal political side of this that I'm less less kind of. Uh, adept at and he's he comes from that perspective and has and has a has a good uh, perspective so those are those are books that i think that are worth well worth reading thank you roger and in fact uh, as all things have to come to a close uh, but i i would recommend everybody on this chat that you should read this book when more is not better overcoming america's obsession with economic efficiency to really get more insights out of what roger is saying i think this has just been a very very interesting interaction uh, and I think one thing that really hit me was the idea of peak economist. And I think that'll stay with me for a very, very long time. Uh, Roger, thanks a lot for joining us today and being with us. It's just been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Mr. Mehra, for being with us today. Uh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you, Roger. Well, well the, 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 honor, the honor is mine, uh, Amit, and it's great to uh, uh, reconnect with an old, old friend and, and uh, very nice to meet a new one. Thank you, Roger. Be well, be safe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Roger, Take thank care. You. Bye. Bye-bye.